ignition sequence start. Five. Everything. Three. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm George Drake Jr. And I'm yawning, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Craig Shank. This is Everything Sounds. The yawning edition. Jeez. Let's do that again. Okay. I'm George Drake Jr. And I'm Craig Shank. This is Everything Sounds. Reuben Garrett Lucius Goldberg, or as he's most commonly known, Rube Goldberg was a talented artist, writer, and engineer, but he's probably more famous for his work as an inventor, most notably the aptly named Rube Goldberg machine. And if you don't know, a Rube Goldberg machine completes a simple task in an unnecessarily complex way. Essentially, it just uses chain reactions to accomplish something really simple. One thing triggers another, which then triggers another and another, and so on and so forth. A lot of times, these contraptions are on smaller scales. They use things like dominoes and marbles. But sometimes, they're much bigger. They could involve things like cars and barrels. In 1963, one of these small-scale contraptions was a board game developed around the Rube Goldberg machine idea, and it saw a resurgence in the 1990s. It was called Mousetrap. Just turn the crank and snap the plank and boot the marble right down the chute. Now watch it roll and hit the pole and knock the ball in the rubber up tub. Which fits the man into the fan. The trap is set. Here comes the net. Mousetrap. In the 1985 film Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he used what was called the breakfast machine to make himself, of course, breakfast. <laughs> Me too. Come on, let's get some breakfast. It made orange juice, toast, eggs, and pancakes, all using, among other things, a carousel, a life-size Abraham Lincoln statue, and an anvil. Oh yeah, the the pancakes had a face made of egg eyes and bacon lips, and of course Pee-wee talked to it. Good morning, Pee-wee! Good morning, Mr. Breakfast! (laughs) Jump ahead to 2006. The Discovery Channel show Mythbusters attempted to make their own Rube Goldberg machine as part of their Christmas special. I'm thinking like a Rube Goldberg Christmas contraption. I love the idea, but where's the myth? We don't need a myth. We can just have some fun. It's Christmas. I love it. For the machine, a bowling ball was dropped onto a ramp. Sending this bowling ball spinning, 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 down. A model train was used. Release the train. Woo-hoo! All the way around, all the way around. Even a kitchen stove. The stove, which has roast in it, will release its roast onto the seesaw, onto the dinosaur platform, jiggling this thing. All to drop their crash test dummy on the ground. Pulling a string out, which lets this foot kick the broken crutch here, sending Buster crashing into the ground. And that's what's going to happen. In 2010, rock band OK Go, who are just notorious for their outlandish music videos, they did an entire video uh, for their song This Too Shall Pass with a Rube Goldberg machine. It all started with the falling of dominoes, and all the stuff in between was synced up with the music, and it ended with the members of the band being shot with paint. Needless to say, the crew was pretty happy when it was over. Then in 2012, the Rube Goldberg machine concept was the starting point for a video art piece by a guy who lives in I'm Brooklyn. A, my name's Steven Meyerding. I'm a photographer, and I also do uh, video art as well. Steven wasn't always interested in being an artist. In fact, he's got a twin sister named Allison who always seemed to be more artistically inclined than he was. He instead took an interest in science. Steven says his sister is more expressive and emotional in her work, 
but he favors a more technical and methodical approach. And what's more technical and methodical than pursuing a chemical engineering degree at the University of Delaware? Stephen has always had a passion for science, but he wasn't always finding compelling reasons to stick with it once he started his studies. I actually started talking to people who are actually in the field, and I couldn't find anybody who really liked their job. I, I grew up in Delaware, which is a big chemical um, sort of powerhouse, as where DuPont and all, you know a, a bunch of prescription drug companies are, and everyone I spoke to just didn't really like their job that much. And I was like, well, I'm not sure I want to do that for the rest of my life. Hearing about other people's experiences, combined with his own, made the choice pretty clear to him. I just, uh, I was feeling like a calculator. And I took a winter session of, I was like, I'm going to do something different, and took my first drawing class, and I quit my major right after that session. He found a path that allowed him to combine his creativity and meticulous nature, visual communications, and graphic design though his focus on precision might have seemed almost obsessive in some cases. You know, I would be doing all these layouts and, you know, I always thought there was some sort of like mathematical mode to it. And, you know, we were in class and my work is on this big projection in front of the whole class. And he's like, Steve, let me see your guides. And I turned them on and it was, it had about, about 1,500 guides down to the half centimeter. He graduated in 2002 and much of his background has been with still life and photography. He moved back to Brooklyn and now balances his time between work for clients and making art for his own sake. But that balance kind of tips heavily in the favor of his paid work most of the time. You know, what happens is you get so busy and you, you, you actually start to really love your job and enjoy what you do anyway, regardless whether someone calls it art or whether you're making money off it. I mean, I, I love what I do, but I would say 95% of what I do has to do with, um, you know, making commercial products look really appealing. <laughs> Steven's hobby is also the way he makes his living. It might seem odd to some people, but his escape from work happens to be doing more work. His projects that he tackles in his downtime or on vacations are fun, offbeat, and often collaborative. Doing something creative is cathartic for him. It allows him to work without constraints that he usually encounters while working on paid work. It's all the best parts of my job without all the worst parts. You know, and it's sort of like how you think, you know, when you're going into school, you, you think that you know, they're telling you about these awesome jobs and you think it's it's going to be as cool as it is in school. You know, the projects are going to be as fun, but they don't tell you that clients are basically dictating everything and really you'll be spending more time doing your business side of it than you are going to be actually creating something. It was during one of these periods of downtime that Steven created a video piece. He's an avid cyclist and loves taking things apart and putting them back together, so he created a short video using bicycle parts in front of a black background. And when I phrase it like that, it doesn't necessarily seem like there's much to it, but there is. You've probably never heard bicycles making sounds like these. And this is where that whole Rube Goldberg machine thing comes back into play. His piece is called Bicycle Sounds. It developed because he wanted to make the largest Rube Goldberg machine that he could in his basement. But there were some hurdles to making one himself. The fact that the basement was only 10 feet wide was one of the major constraints, 
but through some careful camera and microphone placement and a little bit of creativity, he was able to capture the essence of the mythical contraption. So everything that is powering it is literally right out of the frame. You know, everything is sort of suspended in space. It's like floating in black. And what that is, is there's tons and tons of rigging behind it all with like, I would say 800 pounds of sandbags and whatever I had, paint cans, gallons of water, whatever I could have to keep this thing from falling apart with the pressures and forces that are on it. And then we just took this black felt, it's called flock, and we just cut it painstakingly and covered every single piece of um, hardware so you can't see it. And then it's lit in a way so that only the, the thing that you're seeing has any sort of shadow on it. So it feels like it's floating in space, but it's, it's really not. And then there were the factors that he couldn't really control. You make it as, as quiet as you can, but it's still... There's a city street 10 feet away from the window with trucks that drive by, so... Hopefully we're waiting for the traffic lights and timing it just right, or maybe we're, we're shooting at a later hour, so there's not as much traffic going by. But yeah, there's tons of takes where, you know, everything's going good, and all of a sudden you just hear... And that's a truck just flying around the corner and the whole house shakes as it does here. And, you know, that's not a take I'm going to (laughs) use. Aside from his main goal of creating the Rube Goldberg machine, Steven really didn't have any other goals for the piece. The results are based on experimentation in the filming and editing process. Initially, he planned on releasing a series of separate videos. Each one would have scenes that they staged, but it seemed that everything worked better together as opposed to individually. Trying to experiment with what aesthetically was appealing to me. Um, So that just turned into a whole bunch of shots and you shoot things slow, you shoot things fast, you know, everything in between. We're throwing water at them. You end up with this collection of a huge amount of, of movies, you know, just little movies. And then it's really, it's in the editing process where you start to rearrange them and put them in together kind of like a deck of cards and that's kind of where it came out of and I was like oh yeah this is cool like I can actually feel something as you know as I'm going through the edit and you just kind of keep tweaking and tweaking until you're like yeah this is good. When you watch this video you can tell that you would need access to a lot of bikes to create something like this. Steven owns seven bikes that he could use for the piece but he also had to ask the local bike shop if they could spare any parts. Luckily they had a few things to help him out but the broken and bent pieces were about to go through even more tough times. He held the parts in vices, bent them, and then reassembled them into odd arrangements. Now, the video is pretty colorful, and it does grab your attention with all the moving wheels and gears and other stuff, but the sound is what really grabs your attention. You hear ordinary sounds take on an entirely new life, and it even starts to feel like there's almost a rhythm to what you're hearing. You know, I wasn't necessarily trying to create a song or a composition, but that's sort of how it turned out. But, you know, it wasn't well thought out like a normal, like normal music. But when you listen to it, it builds a lot of tension. You know, there's, there is a backbeat, which is the sound of this card that's just being flipped, um, you know, which creates like this don't, 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 you know, a driving thing. And as you add and layer in all these other sounds from the different scenes, It just becomes more and more and more chaotic and frenetic. And, you know, finally, 
as you really ramp up that card that's in the clothing pin, it, it makes almost sound like a lawnmower. Or, you, you know, I was really surprised by how that was going to turn out. It almost seems like a song as more elements get layered on top, but it doesn't quite make it to that point. Steven said a lot of people point out that he could have taken it a step further and made music from those elements, but that was never his intent. He thought making a song would be kind of contrived. Instead, he chose to let the bikes make their own kind of music. It's almost better as some kind of crazy thing that isn't trying to be like everything else. It just let it do what it, what it does. You know, if a bike was going to make a song, it probably wouldn't be very good. And that's pretty much, if a bike was going to make a song, that's what this video would probably be. At one point, we asked Steven about the sounds that were excluded from the video, and it led him to an interesting thought. You know, there was some stuff where, like, we really had this bell spinning crazy. I mean, there's a, there's a crazy spin spinning bell at one point where it's going pretty fast. It's like, ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. But we had it at points where it was like, ching, 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 ching. And things like that just kind of like, it just became too distracting in a way. And, you know, for me, it just didn't sound beautiful. So, you know, it was anything that I didn't think, anything that wasn't beautiful for me, I just kind of took out. Beauty might not be the first thing that comes to mind when people hear bicycle sounds. We asked him to explain how he would define beauty, and he said it was something that can't be explained in some cases. We just have to feel it. He said that some sounds can often be jarring when we first experience them, but after we hear them more often, we get accustomed to them. Once we're comfortable with them, we may hear beauty in them that we didn't notice before. And part of the beauty of sounds may very well be the associations that we carry with those sounds. Steven said that many people feel nostalgia about their childhood and putting playing cards in their wheels or beads on their bicycle spokes, but he remembered something beautiful from the way that children experience the video itself. It happened when they had people over for an open studio that was part of a Brooklyn arts festival. But I was showing all my videos in this television set over here and we had tons of kids come over but I think the coolest part for me is you'd have a three or four year old and they would just go sit on this chair and all this stuff is happening around them. And you know, people are really just drinking wine and eating crackers and they're milling all over the house and you'd have these kids in these chairs and they'd just be like, the video would be on and they'd be completely transfixed. Like their eyes are wide open. They're just like stuck on the television. As a little kid, you just get sucked into it and it's all it has to do with the sound i think it, you know the visuals there's a lot of colors and stuff but it, you know i think the sound has a lot to do with it too find the bicycle sounds video and a link to steven's portfolio on our website everythingsounds.org while you're there you can find links to our social media pages itunes soundcloud and stitcher be sure to like our pages subscribe share and let your friends know about the show. Your help goes a long way. And if you really feel like going the extra mile, we wouldn't say no. Go ahead and become an Everything Sounds audiophile. We offer the show for free to you every week, but it isn't free to produce. So if you'd like, support the show and get access to bonus material as it becomes available. Just click the support link at everythingsounds.org.
Thanks for listening to Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake Jr. This has been Everything Sounds. Find out more about the podcast at everythingsounds.org. Connect with Everything Sounds on Facebook and also on Twitter.